Scripture reading tonight comes from Ecclesiastes 3, beginning in verse 9. Ecclesiastes 3, beginning in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. And God bless the reading and preaching of his word tonight. On the National Mall between the Lincoln Memorial and the World War II Memorial, as we all know, there is a large reflecting pool. The pool is 167 feet wide and 2,029 feet long. On the sides of the pool, the water is 18 inches deep, and in the center it's 30 inches deep. And when the pool is full, it holds 6,750,000 gallons of water. You're not writing this down. And if we stand on the top of the stairs of the Lincoln Memorial, or better go to the top of the Washington Memorial, we can look out at the pool and with our vision we can take the whole thing in. We can see it from end to end and side to side. We can see the whole thing. But let's shift our vision a little bit and now let's stand at the Atlantic Ocean and find the highest lighthouse we can find or the highest structure that we can find looking out over the ocean. And as we look at the ocean, we can fill our eyes with a vision of the ocean. Our eyes can completely can see nothing but ocean. And yet, even so, we all know that you couldn't stand on the shore of America and see the other side. We couldn't stand at the north and see all the way to the south, or the south and see all the way to the north. The ocean is too vast and too large. We really see a very small portion of the ocean when we stand at that high place and look. Now, these comparisons might just seem like so much trivia, but I think they make a helpful comparison to the way in which we see God and the way in which we think about God. We can take in the lessons about God that are found in nature. Paul in Romans 1 talks that if we look at nature, we can see the intelligence or the wisdom of God. We can see the power of God. We can see the passion, the compassion or the provision of God and be thankful. Or we can consider the images and the figures that God uses to reveal himself to us in Scripture. And while all of this reveals truth to us about God and about who God is and help us to understand God, none of them give us a complete picture of God. We can't see the whole of God 
from that one perspective. He is too large and our minds are too finite to take him all in. We cannot see all of God. I can't help but think that that might be part of God's wisdom in choosing so many different images for describing who he is. For example, the Bible presents God to us as our creator. He speaks and with his word creates the heavens and the earth. The Bible talks to us about God being a father and a savior. There are places in the Old Testament in which God is spoken of as husband. And there's even one image where God is spoken of as mother. Jesus talks about being a mother hen and gathering her chicks to himself. God is sometimes presented to us as a warrior and a king and a farmer and a vine dresser, a judge and a shepherd, and so much more. So all And all of those tell us something about God and about his nature. But none of them by themselves tell us everything. We sometimes fall into a trap, I think, of focusing on one view of God, one image of God, to the exclusion of others. Perhaps our favorite image of God is to think of him as a loving father. And scripture almost commands us to think of him that way, doesn't it? A father who is merciful and gracious and who upholds us. And that is certainly what scripture teaches us about God. But I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say a prayer in church to God and and somehow address him as a farmer or a vine dresser. And yet Jesus calls his father a vine dresser. We don't think about God as a warrior. Have you noticed that we don't sing Onward Christian Soldier anymore or those other militant Christian songs? But we don't think about God as a warrior. But turn in your Bibles to Psalm 50. There's a fearsome picture of God coming on the clouds of heaven as a warrior. Coming to David's rescue. Coming to the rescue of his people. God is a mighty warrior. And yet he's revealed in those images and so much more. And he is truly a loving father. And all of these images help us to understand him. Well, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verses 1 through 15, we have a vision of God that we may not think about very often. And in this passage, God's eternal nature is being portrayed to us. That is the concern of these pictures. And how much God is really beyond us. Beyond us, and yet so very near us. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15, should have the effect on us of making us feel very small and very insignificant. And that's okay. It is appropriate for us to feel small and insignificant before our God. The passage begins with a poem that is really about God and about human life, verses 1 through 8. Some of us will reveal our age if the words of verses 1 to 8 
bring to mind that song, Turn, 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 by the birds from the 1960s. And don't sit there and say you don't remember that. But the poem opens with a declaration. And the declaration is this. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. We might be tempted to think that the writer who refers to himself in chapter 1 and verse 1 as the preacher is simply making an observation about the ebb and flow of life. We might think that he's making some kind of a comment about how things happen in life. But while he speaks of human activity, the focus here or the concern here is more about God than it is about human beings. And the context of this declaration in verse 1 insists that God is the one who orders time. That God is the one who sets time for everything. That he has assigned the seasons. And he is the one who determines the passage of time. We should think of time as being his possession in the same way we think of the planets as being his possession or ourselves being his possession. In writing this, the preacher wants us to appreciate that God is sovereign, that God is king, that God is ruler, that God is Lord, that as our Jewish neighbor is addressing, he is the master of the universe, blessed be he. He is aware that the lilies need to be clothed, and he knows that the sparrows need to be fed. So life, as God has created it, has times and seasons. But it's also implied in these first eight verses that there is a mystery here. That there is a mystery about the times and the seasons. And I think one writer captured the mystery very, very well. The the failure that we have to understand all of this very, very well. When he, he says this, We all ask ourselves, Who would have ever thought that the time would come when I would do or say such and such? And you fill in the blank. Maybe you thought of this at one time in your life, you know, I will never say the things that my mother said to me. I am never going to be like, I'm never going to treat my kids the way my dad treated me. And now your kids are the same age, and what are you doing? You sound like them, and you say what they said, and you do the things that you did. And the mystery here is how does that happen? How do we come to such a time? How do things change? None of us comprehends the changing of the season. We can count down the days until fall and to winter and to spring and to summer. One of our teachers told me this morning there are 175 days to to summer vacation. And school hasn't even started yet. And John's over here looking back at Susan. I don't know why. We may have a science background and we may be able to explain the physical forces that bring about the change of the seasons. But for all of our scientific knowledge about that, there is still a mystery. How does that change happen? Why does that change happen? And so, too, there is a mystery 
about the times and the seasons of life. We can stand at the top of the lighthouse as we do in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15, but our small minds cannot take it all in. The poem that begins in verse 2 gives us a series of 14 contrasts, a series of events and activities in life that are portrayed to us as opposites. They encompass all of life. There is a time to be born. There is a time to die. There are times of individual life, and there are times of community life. There are times that are for destruction, and there are times for construction. There is time for separation, and there is time for union and coming together. The preacher is saying that the joys and the sorrows of life are experienced between these points of contrast. He's saying that God has so designed life that life moves between these points in a pattern and flow that only God himself knows. And it is beyond our comprehension. We experience these times. We have all of these things happening in our lives, but we don't set the pace of what happens, the changes, and we don't comprehend how it is that these things come to pass. Another writer makes the point that these are God's times, not our times. They happen to us, but they are under divine control. God is sovereign over everything, including the times and the seasons. And so it is that there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate a time for war, and a time for peace. But what are we to make of all of that? Well, the preacher gives us an explanation, or at least a partial explanation, in verses 9 through 11. 9 through 11 is a commentary, if you will, on the first eight verses. The preacher asks this question. What does the worker gain from his toil? As we pass through the times and the seasons of life, what value is there in it? What real value is to be found in life as we pass through these seasons? The preacher says that he has seen a burden put on people. And the burden or the challenge for us is this. Where is it that we find gain or value or worth as we pass through the seasons 
and lives of t- and times of life. If we don't determine them and if we can't control them, if we're something like a ping pong ball that just goes from one side to the other, what is the point? What does it all mean? And we might be tempted, like some students of Ecclesiastes, to say, oh, there is no point. There is nothing to it. There is no value. There is nothing at all to be gained. In the preacher's own words, everything is vain and empty. Everything is a chasing after the wind. But look at the end of the poem again at verse 8. And notice that the preacher does not end the poem with those kinds of words. He doesn't give his customary judgment of vanity, vanity, all is vanity and chasing after the wind. No, he sees something different in human life, in the work of a person, in the times and seasons of life. And what he sees is that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, we we know some easy ways to understand that, don't we? What is more beautiful than flowers blooming in the spring or, or the leaves on the tree turning their colors in the fall? There's something beautiful about that. But the word beauty here doesn't simply mean attractiveness. Here it has a very special meaning of good or appropriate. You see, it's not that God has simply assigned the times and seasons to events, but in what he has done in creating us and in regulating life, from his point of view, there is a rightness about the times and seasons. There is an appropriateness about them. There is something fitting about them. Um, Maybe those of you who have grown children can could appreciate that there, there is something wonderful about having a child who has grown up and has gone through school and has found their path in life and can stand on their own two feet. That's beautiful. That moment in life is, is beautiful because that's where they should be. That's, that's how their life ought to be. And to see them in that situation in life is, as the scripture says, is fitting or beautiful. And so there is a certain appropriateness about our lives and about the times and seasons that God has set. But still, we want to know, how can we comprehend God's choices? How he saw the good or beauty in the times and seasons that he has appointed. Well, the preacher tells us that God has given us a gift. Actually, he speaks of several gifts here. But he says that he has set eternity in our hearts. He has given us a capacity for imagining or thinking in terms of duration, uh, of a sense of past and a sense of future. We do have an understanding, a comprehension that there is a time for all of these things. But even with that sense of eternity in our hearts, it is still beyond us to know what God has done from the beginning to the end. God can see all of life from the first day of creation to the first day of eternity after Judgment Day. He knows how it is all moving. 
He knows how it will all work out, how it all fits in eternity, how it all fits in his plan. He can see the end from the beginning. And still it remains beyond us to see time and eternity as God does. Now, does that make life meaningless or pointless? Does that rob life of having value? Look at verses 12 and 13. And the answer is no. The writer of Ecclesiastes will not let us slip into despair and skepticism. Sometimes people read Ecclesiastes and call him the skeptic or call him a a person in despair. And I think that's a very poor reading of Ecclesiastes. The, The preacher knows and says that there is value in life, even in life that moves through these set seasons and times, even life that has lived under the sun, which is the preacher's way of referring to life that has a birth and a death. First, he says, there's nothing better. There is nothing better for men than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. There is joy in life, and that joy is a gift from God. There is a place in our lives, because God has made us this way, for us to give service and to render help to others. And that is something that God has given us. And there is a joy in that. When we help someone else, when we serve other people, there is a joy. And the writer of Ecclesiastes say, take hold of that joy. Take care of that pleasure. Because God has given it to you. God intends us to find joy in our service and in doing good. But then he says that food and drink are also gifts from God. And he intends us to enjoy them. He intends us to be satisfied in them. We have work to do. There is labor for our hands every day. It may be at a desk. It may be at a machine. It may be in the soil. It may be at a computer. But there is labor to do. There is something for our hands to do. And the preacher says that in this labor, we are to find satisfaction. We are also to find joy or gladness. And so tomorrow at work, when nobody pats you on the back and nobody says thank you and nobody says you did a great job and nobody notices what you've done for the last 150 days, Just understand that you can still find joy in that work because that job, that work that you do is God's gift to you. It is what he intended for you to do in your life. He intended us to work and to find satisfaction or to find pleasure in what we do. And again, that pleasure is his gift. It is what he wants us to have. And so there is value and there is purpose and meaning. The preacher returns to the main theme at the end in verses 14 through 15. The lives of men and women pass through times and seasons set by God. We have a sense of the eternal, but God's doings are beyond our understanding. And the preacher affirms that what God does endures forever. What God does 
is permanent. It does not change. His work is everlasting. God does nothing in vain. God does not make mistakes. As was the popular phrase a few years ago was on different kinds of posters and signs, God doesn't make junk. And if you think you're junk, you're wrong, because God doesn't make junk. And one way that we can see that displayed is in the repetition of events. Past and present are always before God. And he is sovereign, and he is always king. The preacher tells us that there is a divine purpose in all things. And that purpose is that people will revere God and honor him. We see God in this passage coming so close to us. So close that he orders the times and the seasons of our lives. He gives us gifts with which to enjoy our existence. He gives us a vision of eternity through the mirror darkly. And yet at the same time, he is so far above us. He is so much more than we are. He is so far beyond our ability to comprehend. He is our sovereign God, and we are his wee small creatures. And the right response to him, both in his nearness and his transcendence above us, is always to revere him and to honor him and to worship him and to be in awe of him. The right response to God is to humble ourselves in his presence and give him adoration and praise. As we said at the beginning, this is only one vision of God. And scripture has many more. It's one way in which he has revealed himself. And as we read it and contemplate it, we do with an awareness that God is so much more. And this God who is so much more cares about us. And he is close to us. For not only has he ordered the times and the seasons of life, but he has also redeemed us for himself. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, You see, at just the right time. Do you hear that word? At just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And at a time only known to him, as Jesus himself tells us, God will send forth his son again and gather all of God's children home to spend eternity with him. One of my favorite stories is this. There's a Bible school class for for five and six-year-olds. And the Sunday school teacher had given them paper and crayons and told them to draw a picture of anything that they wanted to draw. And so they take the paper and the crayons and everybody gets busy. But there's one little girl who is just working furiously. It's like she's trying to build the greatest monument that ever was. I mean, she's really, really intent on this picture. And the teacher just can't figure out what... She's so excited about her, what she's, why she's working so hard. And finally, she asks the little girl, and the little girl says, I make, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher says, well, no one knows what God looks like. 
And with confidence that only a five-year-old can have, she looked at the teacher and said, well, when I get done, they'll know. (laughs) I hope this meditation, this devotion on Ecclesiastes 3 will help your vision of God and that it will draw you closer to the Father, that it will encourage your faithfulness as you serve Him this week. Let's stand and sing our invitation song. If someone needs to do God's will tonight,